Hello and welcome to today's episode on blockchain and financial inclusion. I'm Effie Pilarinu and I'm with my co-host Arun Krishna Kumar from Rhetoric in London. Hi, this is Arun Krishna Kumar from Rhetoric in London. And today our special guest is Eduardo Salazar with Forktis. Tell us about uh, Forktis. Unfortunately, I missed your um, amazing event. I heard great things about the meetup at Trust Square where you first presented Forktis, but I wasn't able to come. So tell us uh, the value proposition and, uh, of course, tell us about you too, how, how you, you founded. Uh... Yes. I mean, basically, um, the idea behind Fortis about trying to see whether something different could be done in, uh, in the blockchain space by effectively looking at, the, at some of the issues that existing blockchain platforms do have in terms of scalability, in terms of reliability, in terms of, uh, of speed, and also by saying, right, okay, um, at the time, I'm, I'm talking about a year, um, as you know, most of the, of the crypto space was very, very much um, enthusiastic and pumped up by this whole phenomenon of cryptocurrencies, which was mostly, mostly uh, pushed by, by, by speculation, mostly pushed by people which thought, okay, look, uh, here's there's a new asset class which seems to be up and up without bounds. And that's what created a flood of uh, investment um, into it, uh, mostly from retail people, people which basically wanted to gamble their savings. But at the end of the day, we think that this sort of technologies can do something more and can be used for, for other, in, in other ways. And one of the things that uh, has always um, kind of uh, piqued my attention is the fact that, well, okay, can we use this technology to facilitate financial inclusion? And what are the conditions uh, whereby that can be done? And what is required, especially in the developed world, in terms of, right, what does a blockchain-led technology need to provide uh, in order to facilitate financial inclusion? And also bundling the concept of a stable currency around it. So it's not just uh, the element of representation, which I can talk in, in a minute, but it's also the element around um, a stable coin bundled as part of the token. So, yeah, I mean, the presentation went into to, to explain what our token is. Uh, I think that interesting, it was, it was interesting that uh, many of the talks in this space, you know, you usually, you see people uh, putting slides with kind of uh, sheets of code or maths. Uh, and uh, although I had those, I went to the meeting with a actual physical representation of the token. So I said to people, well, look, you don't need necessarily to understand the maths or to understand the code. Here it is. So I showed it kind of physically, which was incredibly impactful because for the first time you could see that you could see people like disentangling themselves from trying to understand a perhaps a more abstract concept in terms of code of maths, which were presented on screen with the actual physical representation. You know what? By the end of the day, this is it. This is what it is. And this is how it's formed. And this, these are the elements behind it. But that, what, that's why I think was very, very impactful. Uh, when you say financial inclusion, Eduardo, there's a, there's a broad field and that's a broad uh, term. Are there any specific use cases, specific emerging markets problems that you're trying to solve with your product? Yeah, financial inclusion is a broad definition. And um, typically, you would see that people tend to uh, associate that with providing 
uh, the equivalent of banking facilities to those who otherwise are excluded from the formal financial sector. But financial inclusion, it's more than that. Um, it's about representation. So it's about tightening. It's about the ability to uh, allow people in the in developed countries which find difficult to represent their property rights on assets they own into some sort of, um, of token and be able to use a technology to effectively decide what they do with, with, with those property rights, whether they want to make liquid, whether they just want to reaffirm their, uh, their title into it, and so on and so forth. So that's, I mean, in, in a way, what we're trying to do is uh, a bit of both things. So really, it's all about assisting to unlock value, especially in emerging markets that is locked because of all these frictions um, that, that we all are aware of and, and the real estate uh, example is, is well understood to all of us. Yes. Of unlocking a, a value um, of an asset that you do have ownership, but you can't uh, use it and it, you can extend it to much more, correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's about unlocking value. I mean, this whole idea of representation, it's interesting enough, it was uh, flouted by a Peruvian economist, Hernando de Soto. Uh, he published a book called Debt Capital. We are kind of moving in, in a different direction, but uh, at, at, at the end, it kind of picks up that spirit of the fact that, right, okay, so how do you, how do you can effectively transform what otherwise will be uh, conceived as debt capital into usable capital, into something that becomes valuable and that you can eventually... So, so now that you mentioned De Soto, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're coming from as a Latin um, and how that has um, you know, contributed to, to where you're at uh, today and where you're heading with Fortis? Yes. Well, I'm from Argentina. So um, clearly uh, from, an, from an economy which now and in the past, or at least for the last, shall we say, 70 years, has been in a bit of a turmoil. I mean, I've suffered myself two hyperinflations firsthand. I mean, uh, basically running between cashing in my salary and going to the shops to buy, to buy food because between the morning in which I cashed the, 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 my salary and the evening in which I got back home to do my purchases, perhaps prices would have gone up by 20% or something like that. I mean, so uh, in economies in whereby there are still, uh, I would say, uh, acute problems in relation to the, uh, in relation to property rights, whether it's because the legal systems are not particularly fluid, whether it's because the economic environment is not working as it should be in what we understand as a capitalist society. I mean, and, and obviously uh, the, the premise here is that whether we like it or not, I know that different people have different views. We nowadays uh, live in a capitalist world. We don't have any more this sort of to the back. Okay, we the, we're the occasional outlier, but we're seeing what's happening in those occasional outliers. So at the end of the day, if we think about a, uh, if we think about a world which, uh, which uh, effectively works uh, and integrates itself within some sort of a capitalist rules. Um, some countries are embrace them formally and in actual real facts in different ways. And um, and if you in Latin America, I mean the the problems of titling, the problems of representations have been difficult to say acute, but it's been a, it's been an issue. It's been a pressing issue, and it's been a, a, it's been one of the pending assignments by governments. And actually, by the end of the day, it's institutions, uh, the ones which uh, nowadays nowadays are challenged with 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 with, with ensuring property rights to the to their citizens.
So, Eduardo, is your experience with hyperinflation? Is that what you, uh, what drove you to decide go for uh, stable coins? Is that and the reality of Latin America in general? I mean, it's uh, hyperinflation. You you could say that it's one of those phenomena that uh, makes you think. I mean, uh, in the, I, I remember. I mean, just to give you an example, in the two thousand and one crisis, I was living in Argentina at the time when the two thousand and one crisis came, which was the fall of the convertibility, the, the the currency peg. I remember that I went to bed and I knew my house was valued X, and I woke up the next morning and uh, my house was valued uh, perhaps seventy uh, percent or sixty percent of X within you know so uh, and and of course with great limitations in terms of oh you had money in your banks and you faced what we were calling the corralito so you couldn't take your money out of your banks other than in pill-sized dosage um, which created a huge amount of so you know when you live in those sort of in, in those sort of environments I mean I have to consider myself within the privilege um, sector of society but when you look at the poorest the, the people which are facing uh, much much greater challenges, in terms of finding jobs, in terms of securing property, so on and so forth, the effects of, of in economic instability are absolutely devastating. And that's what prompted me to think about, right, okay, financial, financial inclusion and representation, it is, uh, it's a facet whereby, where, where, where this blockchain uh, technologies, I'm not saying necessarily ours, but blockchain can provide some, or can provide an alternative. I mean, whether it would eventually work or not, we still remains to, to be seen, but I think it does provide an alternative. Tell us, Eduardo, uh, what exact angle is Fork this uh, taking um, to tackle this uh, problem? Well, um, well, I mean, there are different ways. Uh, the design of the token, it's, it's what we call a polymorphic token, which means that within the same token, you can effectively store, quote unquote, uh, different asset classes, and those different asset classes could be could be anything. Could be from um, from your car to I don't know to jewelry to your home. So uh, in that sense, the token is absolutely flexible to uh, incorporate those asset classes. Furthermore, no two tokens can be the same. I mean, uh, individual A can have. Uh, certain assets uh, represented in the token. Individual B can have different assets represented in that token. And nothing prevents eventually them to transact. So basically exchange one asset for the other if they so wish. And um, there are two elements of representation here. One is representation per se in the kind of the formal definition of the word, which is, right, okay, the equivalent of titling. This other one relates to what we call representational risk, which is one of the Pending elements in, uh, in 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 trying to sort this divide between the digital world and the real world. So the question is: Can you provide a technology which offers a mechanic whereby this representational risk, i.e., I just basically want to incorporate an asset in uh, in my token, and let's assume that I have a very nice car. Uh, that I say that I have a very nice car, but eventually I don't have that. I have a, a Burago model, 125 model of that very nice car. So how could someone in a different geography, in a different part of the world, be certain that the asset you're actually registering corresponds to the actual physical asset, which will still need, exists? And that's what we call representational risk. So can we provide a means whereby our technology enables a third party, again, coming from the real world, and we're always thinking about uh, insurance companies, so people willing to underwrite that risk. Can someone from the external world come in and effectively within the token 
um, certify that what you say you're registering, you know, can be read. It, it, it actually, it is what it is. And hence provide certainty to someone which is in a different place, which doesn't you know personally, which doesn't live in your country, which doesn't know about the legislation rule in your country, but which might be interested in your asset, either as a collateral or to buy it, uh, to be certain that that exact asset exists as it is registered in the in the token. So that's representational risk. That's about uh, ensuring that the assets represented are the actual real world assets which uh, which exist. And the other one is representation in terms of titling, i.e. using the token to be a digital representation of a property rights, which is, you could say, it's, a diff it's another side of the coin, but uh, it's about locking your property rights in a digital token and then eventually opening it up to financial to this sort of new, to a new financial market shall we say make, making it possible to circulate amongst other people within this ecosystem that might wish to eventually lend money against it or or even for you to basically say right okay this is my house and here is a title of my house and it's represented here in this token So why stable coins? Well, because the stablecoin component, again, it's, it's very, very difficult for any two parties uh, to enter transactions where, um, where the, there's no unit of account. And in order for any sort of crypto to become a unit of account, which is a precondition to become a medium of exchange. So usually you see that this is the other thing. You see people which say, oh, how do we, how do we effectively... Um, Uh, enable cryptocurrencies to become a medium of exchange so that people can transact. Well, people will eventually transact uh, and, and use that a cryptocurrency if contracts can effectively be uh, locked against that cryptocurrency. And in order for those contracts to be locked, a precondition is that there's certainty about its value, which means before anything, it ha they have to become a unit of account and then eventually they can become a, a medium of exchange and a store of value, of course. So the, 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 the stablecoin... Perhaps it's, it's kind of seen as the oil that will make the machinery work, but not necessarily. You can transact assets within the token in any form you like, but we will be providing the stablecoin as a means to facilitate transactions uh, and eventually to use that stablecoin for other endeavors which do not necessarily relate to any sort of physical or other assets which might be effectively represented in the token. So on that note, what are your thoughts on the latest uh, episode with Petra and uh, Venezuela? I well, um, the issue with the Petra, it's an interesting one because uh, two things. One is the fact that, um, okay, let's assume that the Venezuelan government and take aside, take for a moment aside any political and your your whether it, it, it their their politics or the or their way of doing things is you feel sympathetic to them or not. So take that to aside for a moment. The key he, the key question here is again okay. So counterparty risk. So they say they're backing their the petro against now seems a basket of goods. So it's not just uh, oil, which they think it will it's fifty percent of that basket, but also. Other, other, other commodity. Now, if you think about just the oil component, the interesting thing about oil reserves is that, of course, we know that Venezuela has, has the largest oil reserves in the world underneath ground. But in order for that, those oil reserves to have um, economic value, they need to be eventually pumped up. Now, who is effectively in charge of pumping that up? It's PDVSA, which is the Venezuelan oil company, which is a state-controlled company. So 
again, you go into this sort of sort of a counterparty risk element whereby you say, okay, this is backed by oil, but oil actually converting that raw oil under the ground into oil with an economic value depends on one guy, whether he says, right, we do it or we don't do it, which throws everything into, into it becomes absolutely meaningless. So I think that this is the other issue with, with, with stable coins where where much is focused and put in the, in, oh, okay, this is backed by a commodity, by, by gold, by whatever. Because my question is the following. People yell, or typically, you know, are very, uh, have become very, very active against institutions since the last financial crisis for all of the obvious reasons, because there has been political mismanagement. Um, so you can understand why. But um, institutions, our view, or at least my view, is that institutions are not going to go anywhere. So they are there. They're part of the social compact. They're part of the social fabric. So there's no point in fighting institutions. We have to use technology to make the institutions better. Now, uh, you come along and decide to set up a, offer a cryptocurrency backed by some. So basically what you're doing implicitly is shifting the counterparty risk from, say, the Swiss National Bank, which you know where it sits, which you can go and knock their door, to an individual, which today may be here and tomorrow might not be here, so the question is prima facie, what makes a private individual much, much more trustworthy than an existing institution, which is part of society? I mean, it is part of the social, you know, the social makeup. It's there. And there is eventually some sort of degree of, of citizen control over it. Um, I think that the issue around, uh, around crypto and cryptos backed by commodities, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what the value of money is and the concept of money and what, why money is money. Uh, in our website, there is a document which I prepared early on about what's called, um, it's our position on cryptocurrencies, which I kind of tackle from a much more academic view, all of this, uh, all of this discussion about what money is, what cryptocurrency is, and why crypto is not money and will never become money unless it's, um, it's, um, um, uh, it's given certain, certain properties which will require crypto to be adopted um, as uh, a currency by the state. So you could say, oh, Petra is going into that direction somehow. But the problem that the Petra has is the reputational risk coming from who is effectively launching it. So it's a bit of a complicated, a bit of a complicated metric, I would say. And I, I'm to, to be honest, I'm not so sure where that will go. I mean, it's uh, uh, it is very, very, uh, very uncertain. Um, you know what? I think that the only thing that petrol brings to the table is that it's the first social experiment at large scale and backed by a government as well, right? Exactly. The ideal figure from an institutional point of view launching it, if you ask me, no. And I have a position. Somebody, some others would say yes, but I think from a from a, it's it's a nice um, it's a nice social experiment. I mean, nice. So I mean, if you look at it as an academic, you look at it from the point of view of the learners you can bring, you you can get out of it. If you look at it as a Venezuelan citizen, um, well, of course, it's a different ballpark. So you know, you have to be very careful. Uh, the social experiments, uh, uh, it's like you know, the experiment in a lab means one thing for the researcher and a completely different thing for the rat that's, you know, spinning on the wheel, shall we say. So uh, uh, sometimes you have to be careful. But yeah, I mean, for, as an outsider, I see it as, a, as an interesting case to watch. Eduardo, tell us uh, um, how is Fortis planning uh, to sort of uh, go uh, ahead with uh, its first sort of use case and proof of concept? I assume it will be 
somewhere in Latin America. Uh, tell us what the plan is. Yes, we are having some in some initial discussions uh, related to that. Um, at the moment, for for obvious reasons, I, can, I cannot be too too open. But um, we're thinking, for example, of in which way we can use uh, our technology as a uh, in uh, in uh, complementing um, what is called poverty alleviation programs. So. Is there a way in which we can use this technology to create another layer on top of the existing layer of of, um, uh, of, of social benefits which are given to the people which are you know more pressed or destitute in society? How we can do it? How can we effectively implement it? So we're having some discussions in that respect. Um, I think that an interesting an interesting element about fintech and technology, and this is something we are very very uh, acutely aware of, is the fact that. Technology may sound very, very nice when you look at it from kind of the gentrified neighborhoods in Zurich or in London or even in Buenos Aires. But um, the fact that you, you, you have a nice technology doesn't necessarily mean anything when you go to the people which effectively are the ones you think are going to be using that technology. You have to be very, very acutely aware of their cultural, anthropological, social makeup which will make them adopt or not that technology, irrespective of all of the intrinsic values that technology has to have. So in the design of, of, of these new kind of tokens, of these new instruments, we have to be acutely aware of how do they fit the social makeup of the people which uh, they are supposed to serve. And that social makeup is different in India as to what it is in Latin America or what it is in Africa. Because societies have different values. Because the way in which value is represented is different. Because the way in which the social relationships take place is completely different. And the way in which they can access and use technology is different. So uh, this is not just saying, oh, right, we have the next best thing since sliced bread and everybody should adopt it. No, you have to really, really be able to, like plasticine, to mold it, to adapt it to the realities uh, in each different area, in each different society, in each different country even, where you effectively expect it to be implemented. And for that, you have to have a design which is flexible enough. Eduardo, that's an, a great point, and I totally agree. My clarification, are you talking about the, the user experience, or are you also talking about the built-in design of incentives, the sort of tokenomics that you're putting in in your uh, blockchain protocol, in your design, so it, it reflects the, those values. I mean, use, and I would say user experience, it's important because it facilitates, I mean, it makes things, uh, you, you bring it closer to the, to, to, to the actual people and you basically adapt it so that people find themselves that the, new, that the technology eventually fits in within the, you know, as I say, their cultural and social rules but it's also about the tokenomics so it's a very it's very 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 complex um not that we're scratching the surface but we're trying to go deep i mean at this moment at this point in time we're kind of you could say well going a bit beyond scratching the surface but the the problems the understandings are incredibly deep it requires much more than code which is one of the things we are focusing in it's like okay we will have people doing code and doing all of the things that everybody in crypto in the crypto world is is very much focused on. But for us, code is not king. For us, code is just a tool. For us, code is just an enabler. And in order for, for code to be an enabler, you have to unlock other things. And unlocking those other things relate to the tokenomics, relate to the user experience, relate to things which my view is, and to be proved wrong, 
are acutely missing for most of the projects which are effectively taking place in, in crypto land. Thank you, Eduardo. That was a really uh, great way to sort of wrap up, up our discussion today. And before we thank you and say goodbye, we'd like to ask you some personal questions. How do you relax from this uh, all-consuming mission that, that you're on? To relax? Jesus. That, that, that's, a, that's a word I haven't, I haven't kind of... Uh, put into practice in the past 12, 12 months, but uh, because I'm working really flat out on, on focus. No, but it's family. It's my family time. It's my, my five-year-old kid. Uh, yeah, you just, find, you just find relaxation in, in the, shall we say, the very, very basic things in life. It doesn't need any more than that. Just the, you know, just being with my family. It's relaxing enough and, and, and sharing moments with them. So when did the blockchain uh, bug bite you? Oh gosh, that's an interesting. I've heard about this uh, this thing called Bitcoin back in the day. So I'm talking about 2009, 2010, and uh, just another thing for geeks. It's just uh, it's like uh, something which will will just be part of the the, the, the geek ecosystem, shall, shall we say? And then many years later, uh, I was uh, effectively commenting. I wrote a piece on LinkedIn commenting on how blockchain could effectively be used in media. I mean, I, my my previous incarnation in my kind of very transversal professional life has been in in the media world. So I said, well, perhaps from a in, in media world, media should effectively start to look into the blockchain as a means to enhance transparency at a moment in which the ANA, the American Advertising uh, Association, was effectively launching an investigation onto kickbacks in, in media. And there was a big, big um, scandal that broke up that was three years ago. And that's how it came, came about. My, that, that idea that I flouted in that, in that LinkedIn article, months later, I saw it sort of um, uh, embodied in, the, in NIAX, which is uh, owned by NASDAQ, which effectively is it's kind of using blockchain uh, for trading uh, programmatic inventory, programmatic media inventory. And that's how it, basically, that's how my interest came, 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 came about. First as a spectator, then saying, right, okay, can I do something about this? Is there, um, can we think about it from a, from a different, in, in a different way? Is there anything to do which goes beyond what exists? And, well, things kind of flew, flew uh, it, it, they flowed naturally. And before leaving you, Christian, Eduardo, before leaving you, Eduardo, can you yeah. tell us what's your favorite piece of music? Oh, gosh, jazz, actually, and tango. So, uh, but then there's an interesting one because uh, modern tango is very much infused by jazz tones. So it's, uh, it's the Piazzolla style, it's what we call new tango. So yeah, it's a combination of jazz and tango. I, that's the sort of music I, I really, really enjoy. I mean, I enjoy every type of music, but those, I would say, top my preferences. Thank you so much, Eduardo, for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you for your time. Okay. Thank you very much. 